0: Town Rats were one of the first acts to emerge from the new wave scene of 1977, scoring top 20 UK hits from their first two albums. Despite their R&B leanings, the band was lumped in with the punk scene and were briefly banned in their home country of Ireland. It wasn't until their third album, The Fine Art of Surfacing, that they earned their biggest hit. It was titled... I don't like Mondays. In January 1979, Bob Geldorf, vocalist with the Boomtown Rats and Rats Piano Man Johnny Fingers, undertook a grueling radio-only promo tour visiting 32 American cities in three days. Geldorf was in Atlanta doing an interview at a college radio station He was pumping the rat's latest single that was a top 10 hit in england but one that had failed to generate much interest in north america during a break in the interview the newsroom's telex machine alarm went off geldorf had been a rock journalist and what he was reading on the wire overwhelmed him brenda spencer a young californian got up that morning loaded a gun her father had allegedly given her for Christmas leaned out her bedroom window and began taking shots at the schoolyard across the street from her house she only stopped long enough to take a call from a local reporter why are you doing this he asked something to do she replied I don't like Mondays and this livens up the day this was a live report on the wire as Geldorf sat there in the radio booth answering questions Spencer had returned to her window and fired off several more rounds. The final toll, the school janitor and principal shot dead and eight school kids wounded. After the interview, Geldorf returned to his hotel room and gathered all his journalistic gifts to turn a news story into a song. Deciding not to mention Spencer by name for fear of turning her into a heroine, he kept the details ambiguous. Geldorf crafted the lyrics to tell a story about psychosis, not Brenda Spencer's life story. As he sat alone in his hotel room, running over the events of the day, he wrote this song, I Don't Like Mondays. I tried to picture the girl, recalled Geldorf in his memoir. I tried to visualize the scene, The police captains, the bullhorns, the playground, the parents. The girl must be some sort of automaton, and I wrote, the silicon chip inside her head gets switched to overload. And of course, why was she doing it? Tell me why. Maybe she's right. Maybe there is absolutely no reason. But it seems the Californian ethos didn't allow for reasons and logic for doing anything. They just did it. Coincidentally, the song made its debut in front of a live audience four months later on a Monday night in San Diego, Brenda Spencer's hometown. I Don't Like Mondays was an enormous hit in Europe. It topped the New Musical Express charts for a solid month in August 1979 and was voted Single of the Year at the British Pop and Rock Awards. It didn't fare as well in the U.S., only reaching number 60, partly because Columbia Records, fearful of a lawsuit from Spencer's parents, withdrew the record one week after its release. The song, however, did have one major fan in the United States. From her jail cell, Brenda Spencer remarked that although she didn't like the Boomtown Rats, she approved of the song because it made her feel famous. Words of Richard Krauss from his study, Who Wrote the Book of Love? The stories behind the hits. Bob Geldorf worried about that very problem. He didn't want his song to glorify Brenda Spencer or her actions. He said he was concerned about her mental health and that of other teens and focused on psychosis and other ills more broadly. Those, two are the concerns of Rudy Caporazzo and Rosie Hay, founders and co-artistic directors of the Rev Theatre Company, especially well-known for their educational outreach programs. The company is based in Philadelphia, but Rudy has strong family ties here in northeastern Pennsylvania, and Rev is usually in residence in Scranton at least two times a year. Rev Theatre Company will present a free performance of the theatre piece Soda Pop Can, an American high school shooting this Friday, March 11th, at NEPA Youth Shelter in Scranton as part of their inaugural partnership. We had a chance to speak by phone with Rosie Hay and Rudy Caporazzo about the theater piece and the partnership with NEPA Youth Shelter.
1: It began last... Yeah, when wonderful Chris Calvey at Lackawanna Arts and Councils put out a notice that there was a, a series of grants called COVID Creative Community Grants that were new and they may only be during the COVID period, but it was for programs that would be helpful and take place during COVID. So I, I knew Maureen a little bit and I thought what she does is wonderful. So I spoke to her and we decided that we would do an after school theater program with some of her teens. So that's how it came about and we were very fortunate enough to get a grant, which was tremendous. So that's how we've come to be at NEPA Youth Shelter and what we were actually doing went through a couple of iterations. We were going to do a more language-based piece like Shakespeare, and then we were looking at Edgar Allan Poe. And then it was really Rudy, who is the creative genius behind this, came up with a really sociopolitical idea that, that is really tremendous.
2: I, I very strongly believed that it was important to do a piece that had significance to these kids' lives, so we're doing a piece based on American high school shootings and, and gun violence in America.
0: And yet, in the way you work with them, you will create something that is bearable, but is deep and resonant.
2: Well, that's lovely to say, and, and we can live in hope and indeed endeavor to achieve that end. It's been a challenge. It's a very emotional piece, and we hope that it will be a provocative piece and a piece that will affect people And and the challenge in it was not to make it didactic or, or preachy in terms of whatever either of the two of us believe and or the kids involved in terms of gun violence. And, you know, the most significant thing for me, having created slash written the piece in terms of the enormity of research material, resource material that was available to me, is... Is It was a blessing and a curse, because there's so much about this stuff, and much of it is, is direct accounts from high school shooters themselves. Certainly those two Columbine boys left behind a legacy of the material. There's something called the basement tapes, where they would get together and put on a kind of mock talk show and, and record the whole thing in their basement, which predates the shooting, obviously. So there was so much material, but the thing that I came away from it with is there is actually no reliable profile of a school shooter. The only thing we can focus on is the mental health of these young people, and people also have asked the question of what can we do to prevent this kind of stuff. I'm not smart enough to have the answer to that either, but I think at the end of the day, all we have is to to make sure that these kids We stay in touch with them, we check in with them in whatever way we can, we're on top of their mental states of being, and keep guns out of the hands of people who might want to use them in nefarious ways. That's all we have.
0: When you came to town and began the process of preparing this piece, did you have sessions in which you drew them out about their own feelings, their own knowledge, and particularly their own fears? We
2: had discussions, and we've had them ongoing throughout the course of the process, throughout the course of rehearsals. We had a pre-scheduled start date, which, thank you, Omicron, changed dramatically. So we had, against our wills, individually and conjectively, more virtual sessions, which we didn't plan on having because we had to postpone, and we, we were scheduled to start again, and then we couldn't, and like that, on and on. So a lot of those, those Zoom meetings, we discussed a great deal what these kids' direct and personally definitive experiences have been. And I hate to say it, but it is indeed universal, if that's the right word, in this country. And so there have been incidences in little old Scranton itself of this kind of stuff, which these kids have been a part of. These kids have, have had to experience and endure.
0: And they are going through drills, I assume. They have to have that experience mm-hmm. as well, right?
2: Yes, and there are some people that that argue that the drills themselves are actually more traumatic, given the fact that people think that incidences are probably less frequent than they are. So, you know, everyone wants to protect the kids, and everyone has a different perspective on how we should do that as a society.
0: And, Rosie, we always turn to you. You talked about possibly doing a language-based program, but how about the language in something like this? It has to be real and true to the way these young people speak.
1: Absolutely. So it hasn't been approached the way that we would approach Shakespeare with heightened language, but it really has been about making personal connections, if possible, if not a lot of imaginative work. And there are sections that have some heightened imagery happening, but you're right. It's much more the language that we speak. It's much more naturalistic or realistic.
2: It's in these kids' vernacular. And, yeah. absolutely is. and there are some, some words that, you know, that would be um, expletive deleted, I guess is the best way of putting it, because a lot of it, in terms of my resourcing it and creating it, ha- has come directly from quotations from individuals who have been involved in these things in one way or the other. They love that part of it. They do. I mean, they're they're so into speaking in in the way they speak, apropos your question, and they're finding that part of it, in and of itself, fairly easy to, to memorize, because a, a few of them have a great deal to say. They have an enormity of responsibility in terms of the, the overall verbiage of the piece, and it's it's not Shakespeare, but it still is, there's a lot of words, it's quite talky.
0: Wouldn't we think, then, that this kind of experience in language that they recognize can give them a new insight into theater? Theater isn't something like Shakespeare in an ivory tower. Theater can come directly from our lives, their lives.
2: Exactly. Yeah, that's such a good point. When we work on the Shakespeare pieces, we have to make those very significant I mean, to us, they may be obvious. To other people, they may need to be, kids may need to be brought to it. The universality of of the Shakespeare situations, the the, the narratives. But in this, there's there's no middleman, for lack of a better way of putting it. It speaks directly to the experience of their everyday lives, which I thought was really important to do with these kids. And at this particular point in time, last year we did a Zoom piece, as you may recall, with UNC based on their pandemic experience. And that sort of opened up a world of new possibilities for me and slash us in terms of what to do and what to bring to these kids and what they can bring to us because I'm being educated every day in the same way that I can only hope that, that we're doing with them through the experience itself.
0: Are you acting with them, Rudy?
2: No. This is just this is all this is all them and they're doing an amazing job. You know, the funny thing is, funny as in haha When we began, everybody had their eye on the prize, and by the prize, I mean the shooter himself. But everyone has the lion's share of responsibility in this and and moments that are quite profound and poignant and significant, and we hope we'll, we'll speak to an overall audience. So everyone is having, I think, a very rewarding time in terms of the process. We've also tried very hard, I've tried very hard, not to glamorize the perpetrator, because there's too much of that in this society. There is original music in the piece written by one of the NEPA Youth Shelter, one of our program participants, which is a fantastic asset to the piece overall. And I've also been very careful. We've been very diligent in not having any... There's other music in it, but any other music that, that would even remotely glorify or, as I say, glamorize that situation, because there's too much of that in our society, and it needs to be taken seriously.
0: What insights are they gaining from going so deeply into this material and inhabiting roles, not just the shooter, but the roles that are in the play, that they didn't know they had feelings like that? A look on the face that's quizzical, and you can see that the
2: light bulb is going on? Well, I think overall, they're very serious-minded individuals. A great deal of the common thing that has been discussed is how there, There is a large faction of kids, as far as their experience goes and what they're relating to us, kids that don't take this stuff seriously, as, as I just said, they, it, it's a joke to them, which astonishes and horrifies us, but for some of these kids, it is so commonplace that it's beyond being numb to it, it's become a joke. Not that these kids would have taken it as a joke to begin with in and of themselves. Across the board, knowing them, working with them for for six weeks now, I don't think I would think that of any of them. But I think their understanding of all of these kids involved from not only the victims, but the perpetrator, too, in terms of mental health, I think has substantially deepened. Not that we've come up with a composite of what a shooter actually is and what we should completely and ultimately look out for in terms of trying to avoid that. But I think they have a better understanding of kids who have those kinds of of difficulties and struggle in terms of a sense of belonging and fitting in. Some of these kids have that themselves. They're just not handling it in an everyday way of, you know, going to weaponry and violence.
0: What do you notice, Rosie, in that regard about the young people themselves coming to grips with the issue now that they're enacting this scenario?
1: Um, I think they're learning a lot maybe about themselves is the most important thing because, they, you know, kids live with violence, gun violence, obviously, in this situation. But I think it's easy for a society to just push violence aside and accept it. And I think that what they're learning, too, is that there's... Rudy has been very careful in the compilation to not blame, but also to not say, this is what makes a person, uh, usually a young man, become a high school shooter and that it could be anyone. And I would hope that we all need to be more aware and more compassionate about the people around us and not make fun of people and not ostracize people and, and be more inclusive. I think that's a really important element that Rudy has found in, in creating this piece. In terms of
2: dispelling the myth of being able to profile the shooter, there's a section where I'm quoting very renowned research clinical psychologists, all of whom have very germane things to say. But the overarching point is because you can't count on any one thing in conjunction with another, there is no reliable profile of a shooter. Did you know, for instance, that most I hate using the word shooter, but perpetrator seems kind of la-di-da, nonetheless. Did you know that most perps come from families where law enforcement and or teachers are of primary significance in terms of vocations in the household? That was a shocking fact for me. I'd never even considered that before as a possibility. Most school shooters are unusually short, as in 5, 8, and under. I had no idea. But you can't, across the board, someone who has a teacher in the family who is say say 5'5", that's an extraordinary coincidence because those things are lining up. So ultimately, if you try to take these things in and of themselves, they don't add up overall.
0: Do you make this real to them by setting it in Scranton? Do we know that this is Scranton or could no, this be any? No,
2: all of these, the, the killer is not a real killer and the, the high school is imaginative and the other kids, the other students that are involved in this are just sort of composites from my research, so it's not... We thought that would make it not good. <laughs> I mean, it's just too real here. There's been too many threats, so it needed to It needed to have an element of imagination involved in that way, I, I thought. We both thought very strongly.
0: And why did you title it Soda Pop Can?
2: Because it is the singular most popular target practice item for kids, and... Most of these kids do spend an inordinate amount of their time with guns practicing, so they shoot things up, and soda cans are the top item in terms of target practice choice. So this this space is going to be transformed, and a lot of it involves the use of, indeed, empty soda pop cans. So that's part of the overall design aesthetic, too, I guess.
0: And this original music created by one of your participants how will it be performed, recorded and then performed as part or sung as part of the... No,
2: it's got to be live. I mean, we are, there was a very serious, significant talk back early days, weeks ago, when we were still in the, in the throes of, of the newest variant. And so we thought we might have to go virtual once again. But no, I, I am singularly committed, as is Rosie, to be fair and to be honest, to the idea of if we're doing theater, as much of it as possible needs to just be there in front of people in a live and breathing kind of way. It's a, it's a wonderful rap piece, and he's going to do it front and center.
0: And Rosie, how do you help students like this find their characters? Do they wind up playing themselves and extrapolating
1: from that? So we're big on the imagination, and obviously they're high school students, so they're going to be elements of themselves. But we encourage them to explore different things, different facets, not to just show themselves in the piece. And Rudy has compiled very specific characters so that the participants were not cast just because, oh, well, he is like this one. We like to mix things up and really try and encourage them to go beyond what is just themselves. I think that's very important.
2: Yeah, in point of fact, and this is not a disclaimer of any kind, although it may seem that way, the young man who's playing the killer himself, in my estimation, is 180 degrees away from ever, ever considering violence as a choice in any situation. So, so it's very much a stretch, for lack of a better way of putting it, and an opportunity mm-hmm. for them to really act and, you know, the other thing is, in terms of the imagination and, and created characters as well as situations, <laughs> there's a part in the piece toward the end where one of the surviving kids talks about other kids who have survived and mentions them by name in conjunction with their injuries, and inadvertently, I made up a name, just made up a name, just pulled it out of my hat, which the kid who's playing the role and has to speak this dialogue said, I went to school with a kid like that, so we immediately changed that name. It was just weirdly freakish synchronicity or or coincidence. Also, it's not, Erica, it's not a quote-unquote well-made play. It's more of a kind of kaleidoscopic experience or a collage. So it's a real theater piece, not a play that is driven completely and ultimately by plot.
0: Where and when can we find it?
1: The play will happen on Friday, March 11th at 7 p.m., at NEPA Youth Shelter, which is 541 Wyoming Avenue in Scranton. It is free, totally free, so people can just show up and come in, and it runs for about an hour.
0: And why is it important, do you think, for the young people to have in the audience more than just their family and friends? Why would it be important for them to have people come in who have just heard this conversation and say, I'm curious about that. What is the extra element that might add?
2: I think they've done a bang-up job in no self-aggrandizing kind of way. This is all about the kids right now for me. It's all on the kids. They deserve the opportunity to Mm -hmm. perform this piece for as many people in the community as possible because they're doing a sensational job and they put their hearts and souls into it. And that should be recognized. I also think that it is going to be a very, it's a very challenging piece. It is provocative. There are some laughs. We've had some laughs in the rehearsal room together, which is fantastic. And I think people will come away having had an enriching experience. Again, really not very much to do with Rosie and me, just to do with experiencing what these young people are capable of doing. It should be acknowledged and, and they should be rewarded by participation and, and a show of appreciation.
0: Rudy Caparazzo and Rosie Hay, co-artist directors and founders of Rev Theatre, speaking with us about a production titled Soda Pop Can, an American High School Shooting, in partnership with NEPA Youth Shelter. The production will be offered Friday, this Friday, March 11th, at 7 p.m. at the Space at Olive, 541 Wyoming Avenue in Scranton. 7 o'clock is the start time.
1: And Daddy doesn't understand it he always said she was good as girl.
0: And he can see... Don't Soda Pop Can, an American high school shooting, produced and presented this Friday, March 11th, at 7 o'clock. The space at Olive, 541 Wyoming Avenue in Scranton. Admission is free, 7 o'clock again, the start time. For more information on the web, NEPA Youth Shelter. NEPA Youth It's a partnership between Rev Theatre and NEPA Youth Shelter.